0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to SEL Convergence. It's been a little while, but we're back, and we've got a lot to talk about. On today's show, Tom is actually going to welcome our first administrator to the show, which is a big moment For us. And this is someone who has facilitated real systemic change for SEL in her building. And you could say she's got a whole book's worth of experience in how to recreate that vision. So without any further ado, Tom, take it away.
1: Mike, thanks so
0: much. Thanks for
1: being with us, everybody. I have a wonderful, wonderful leader, a wonderful friend, and somebody that I absolutely admire Dr. Missy Pashki. Principal of Upper Providence Elementary School in Spring Ford School District. And we want to talk about the wonderful things happening in Upper Providence. But Missy, tonight I want you to begin to share with our friends this beautiful book you have co authored, Visioning Onward, a Guide for All Schools, All Underlined. Tell us about this book, please. Sure
2: thing. Um- so Mike and Tom, thanks for asking me to join you tonight for this conversation. So I had the honor of partnering with two other amazing heart-centered leaders, Chris Mason and Paul Libanow. Chris is from the DC area, Paul's up in Michigan. And I couldn't begin to do them justice with the amount of dedicated work in the wor- in the realm of social emotional learning and just doing what's right for our schools. So. Chris, this book was actually Chris's idea, and she invited Paul and I to join in because of our practical experiences. Paul has the perception of a superintendent, and he's currently an executive director of a very large association. And I brought to the book the perception of a practitioner, a principal in the schools that's actually doing the work and making it happen. So together, the three of us did research and carved together um, a book that gives a plan to any school leader who is, whether it's a single um, school entity or an entire school district, the book really does lay out the process of visioning.
1: So Missy, you mentioned a a terminology, heart-centered, and as Mike introduced, uh, we are the SEL convergence, and and you know because we've worked so closely together in social emotional learning, help our help our listeners understand heart centered, please.
2: Sure thing. So heart centered learning is something. It's it's the terminology that's used by the Center of Educational Improvement in DC, and basically they their philosophies is that everything starts with a mindful awareness at a base level. People need to be seen. They need to be valued. And through that type of work can true, can come true compassion in our schools. It allows us to have the courage to, to embark on more difficult uh, venues. It, it gives us the strength to press forward in this um, work of the human and it, it also centers around not just individuals, but a full community uh, acting forward and, and launching that mission. So, when I say heart centered learning, um, the belief is that in the, we take that concept in this book and put it in action through a visit, uh, the visioning plan. Mm. And it basically is the foundation to what we believe really needs to be in old schools.
1: So you mentioned a couple of things that are really exciting to me. You you mentioned a school district wide plan in, in, in heart centered learning and leadership. But mm-hmm. then you talked about the book, helping the reader and and please help our listener understand putting it into action. Give us details about action.
2: Sure. No problem. So, first of all, all of us, whether you're a school leader or lead teacher or lead learner, you're important. And if you are helping the visioning process, you're not going to do this alone. One of the things that you'll hear as um, you engage with the authors and, and myself in this book is that we encourage you to almost get a table of uh, visioners together, people that a, a group of stakeholders that are going to help to design this. Ultimately, visioning is not a a lone sport, it's a team sport. And so you start by dreaming. You start by what do you believe in? What do we wish for the future? Then from there, you start to take that and, and weave it into these stakeholders. So for example, in a system of a school, what does that look like for the parents? What does it look like for the teachers? How about your school administration? And you start to put language into each element. Uh, some pretty, pretty bright people have shared in the past that you're not going to get buy-in if you didn't help build it. And, you, yeah. and so what you're looking for are people to share their beliefs and come out with a collective understanding of where the system's going to move forward. I think one of the things that's uh, most interesting, too, is in the process, there's room for pause because as you're going along, you have to keep considering what you're building and who's contributing and who else needs to be at that table. So there's a piece in our process that we suggest to the reader that you take, at one point, it's almost midway through, you take that vision that you've come up with and you micro it again. And you you move it through the process again to see if it's sustainable in all areas. And then putting that into action is the beauty of the, that's the end game. That's the launch. That's when you take beliefs and dreams and wishes and visions and you put them into action. And of course, you continue to evaluate.
1: So this process, uh, this pause, I sense that in the social emotional vocabulary, uh, reflection would be a really key point. And I'm hearing you say that all along, you are purposefully pausing and reflecting and re-examining. Am I correct?
2: Absolutely. Yes, very much so. You said it very well. So, for example, when you're pausing, you're thinking of, what am I missing? Who's missing? Mm. A piece of what, we, what we're thinking about isn't the right fit or is a perfect fit in the future as we move forward. It's also important to look at what others have done, in, both in education and outside of education. There have been some significant success stories, lighthouse models out there where schools have done amazing work. And we, in our business, we, we do better together. So the taking a pause to be able to even say, all right, who else is doing the same work? Who is, is out there doing something similar, believing some things? that we haven't gotten to yet, and what have they done?
1: For our readers who are, are students of heart-centered learning, social-emotional learning, are there school districts you'd invite them to, to look into that you yes. admire?
2: Absolutely. So, I um, throughout the book, we provide some of those exemplar ideas and examples, and I I myself have spoken about the work directly at Upper Providence that we've done over, uh, it's going on 18 years now. (laughs) And for a short amount of time, I had the honor of partnering up with Spring City Elementary, which is a sister school. And uh, what happened there is, and we do talk about the change of leadership as a barrier in the book, Mm. it was a change of leadership and a system shift. Uh, The district asked me to partner up with a, at that time, it was a, a, like a lead teacher to take a year over at that school and make change happen that needed to happen. So I partnered with that, um, with that teacher and together we started a whole shift of culture. And the honor I had was, um, her name is Mrs. Sue Choi and at the end of that year our superintendent offered her the principalship and I got to step back into my own school community and Sue took over at Spring City and continued the work we did together so I tell you that story because the details of what we did as a school as a school to come through that visioning process revisit it and shift along the, the trail as we went in other words visioning stays It stays true to your beliefs and your values, Mm. but it does change in the sense of your your path has to be responsive to who's in the system and what's happening in the community. Probably our best example of that has been the pandemic recently.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned stay true to your beliefs. Mm -hmm. For me, as soon as I hear you say that, the word integrity, comes right into my mind, and that's, you know, we know each other, and that's such a powerful and important word in all of our lives. Uh, Is that woven into this heart-centered work?
2: So for me, it has to be. Um, Being integritous is basically acting and and doing what you believe, and what you say is, it matches everything about you, about your system. So it also is a almost a guaranteed path to trust and to creating a collective a collective movement together. So integrity is absolutely a part of this, but I do also want to add that there are components of our belief system and individuals of course, but mostly as a as a school that are solid blocks and won't change. So for example, at Upper Providence, we believe it, that all children uh, need to be valued; that all human beings need to be valued. We believe in taking care of each other and making sure that that we're providing our students and our community the best service that we can pro- possibly offer them, and while we're supporting each other. So those belief systems start to evolve into as they're as they're supported with. In different facets of a school, they start to evolve in the vision forward. So when I talk about when you're talking about integrity, staying true to your beliefs is the integrity on that path.
1: So this idea of core beliefs, you know, is really important to me. Uh, and I read in the book when you had what I consider the privilege of starting this building and interviewing every staff member, um, I imagine you, you really dug into what their core beliefs
2: were. I did. I did. And that's not easy to do in a short amount of time. But as you and I both know, uh, the longer you work in this business and you get to know people, there are certain things about an individual that will sell themselves at that table. And um, when, you, when you start to see the same types of answers circling back to similar values that you hope to have in a system, that's the right match. In saying that, every, there's, a, there's a need for collective understandings, but there's also a brilliance in diversity. Yeah. And um, although you want your vision to be similar, the ability to have... Uh, multi, multiple cultures, multiple perceptions, and just experiences del- delivering that vision is, is where it, it just becomes magical.
1: So let me dig into uh, something that I've been challenged with the past couple of weeks, not, not new to you, not new to Mike, not new to any educator. Here we are <clears throat> in a worldwide pandemic, a few years, a few months into the pandemic, we have significant, significant issues around social justice, which continue to this day. Uh, I, that, that that threw me back into the civil rights movement as, as a young eighteen-year-old, and and uh, we have you know the most recent challenge, the storming of the Capitol. So. I have school districts and, and I'm not, uh, none of this surprises either one of you. I have school districts saying, help us. What do we do? Mm-hmm. So how can this visioning process, can it also work as an intervention? I, I, I clearly see it as a, as a starting point, as a point that, that uh, helps a school system create a new
2: Can it be an intervention process? So the process itself absolutely does support that. Let me take you back to where you started. And whether it be the pandemic, um, the racial tension in our country, the the political um, differences that have evolved, all of those things have happened to us as as a large system. And some could even say some of that has come out because of a lack of vision or a lack of unity, a lack of not people not seeing each other as contributors, but but as opposition. So if we now take our schools and bring that in and our schools are are reacting, and of course our schools are an absolute reflection of our community. We have um, all of those beliefs that are out there in that public presence are inside our school buildings as well. Yeah. But now we have a, a smaller unit by which, not that I want to be naive to say we can control, but we at least have some influence on. And the process of visioning, if it was started prior to crisis, whatever that crisis is happening, And there is a strength in the system and the system is moving forward. And all of a sudden something comes in there and it derails that system and the path that's moving. In my beliefs and in my experiences, the power of that that work is going to be part of what sustains that system through those crises. Because the people that believe in those things, the beliefs aren't going to change just because a pandemic happened. But they will, the, how we execute them and how we, what becomes a priority within them might shift, but it won't necessarily change who we are as a system if we have a solid, solid foundation of, and a solid understanding. But if you would, similar to what you said, as an intervention, if we would then only begin the visioning process at that point, I, I still think it's gonna be helpful because what it does, it puts a protocol to to a question we're trying to answer. So the protocol is to use the structure of the visioning process to help us heal and become one. Yeah. So if you just take all the big words out of it, it's about listening to each other. It's about putting people together at this table and recognizing being okay with differences but trying to find those common those common ground beliefs that we can all get on board and move forward. Um, so as just going through the process validates people and allows people to be heard and that alone starts to unify and, and help people move collectively forward.
1: You're already giving me answers to a question I haven't asked yet. So (laughs) the, the, I want to circle, I want to circle back to something you said in the first minute or two letting everybody know they are important, Mm -hmm. everybody. So here we have, I believe, this exquisitely diverse community that we live in. And some voices are feeling that they've not been heard. Some voices are feeling that they've not even been invited to the table. And and as a heart-centered leader, Mm -hmm. you're talking about developing unity allowing an experience of healing. And I'm hearing that listening is key to all this. Yeah. Uh, our, our, our listeners are our educational leaders uh, in the classroom, in the school district. Can you go into even more detail for us? How do we let all the diverse voices know they are important?
2: Absolutely. So one of the things you mentioned when I opened Upper Providence, I had the honor of uh, interviewing the staff and selecting the people there. But what isn't obvious to most, that could seem like, wow, how easy. You just pick the right people and put them in the slots and everybody goes. Um, But what isn't obvious is that all of those individuals came with previous experiences and perceptions and understandings of what a school should be. There wasn't a unified understanding coming in the door. If anything, there were multiple camps that had to come together to create something brand new, no matter their previous, um, previous visions or previous experiences. So in saying that, what do we do to make people feel heard and valued? Well, what we know is that huge, large committees don't, aren't really functional. Okay. So we definitely need to get the right people on a core team, a team of people who will be represented or will represent a cross-section of, in this case, it was a school. So for example, if your school is is kindergarten through sixth grade, you might want a teacher from every grade level. You also might need to have um, somebody from the instructional assistant staff or two on the the, uh, panel. You might need a special educator, somebody from um, the specialist or unified arts. You might want your school custodian on it and your school secretary or your school nurse. Once you, have, you feel like you have a core committee that represents others, then put them to work. Have them go talk to the people they represent and come back with, them with ideas. Have them ask those questions and have those small discussions based on what that committee's putting together. The other thing that I found very valuable is whether one in one model I call it a focus group, and another model I call them listening tours. So, a focus group is where I, in my opinion, what I have done is I've taken mixed roles. People aren't necessarily on that core committee, but people in the building that have a voice and an understanding of pieces, but also will value hearing each other talk because they don't necessarily see each other. So for example, in some schools, maybe a whole grade level is up on an upper floor and another one's at the lower floor, they may not see each other on a daily basis. So for them to hear across a table, how something, what's important to them and how something will be effective for kids it, it just widens their view. The other thing I've found critical, I call listening tours. And this is where I feel um, it's very important for a marginalized populations. So for example, in a school system, it could be the instruct, maybe the instructional assistants aren't feeling valued, or the special education teachers feel like um, they have uh, no time in their schedule to do things that maybe the unified arts people do. Um, in listening tours, it I tend to pull more like groups together. And that is my job is to ask questions and just listen. And I get, it, you'll get individual feedback, but you'll also start to get group think. And that can be a very good thing because like if Mike and I were sitting and chatting about a topic, um, he may give me a perspective that either shifts my understanding or or pulls something from my background that I wouldn't have pulled otherwise. And allows a deeper, richer conversation. So during this listening tour, I can take copious notes and try to have an understanding of what's coming out. And it will inform the visioning process in a much deeper way. Sometimes Tom, It's just so validating to be asked to even come to the table. Yes.
1: Yes. One of the things I'm hearing, and I want to get some specifics on this, is something I read in the book. This visioning process is not once and done. (laughs) Uh, This is a process, underline the word process, and it's ongoing. So here you are, am I correct, 18 years in Upper Providence?
2: Yeah, that that is true. Uh, it was 18 years ago we started.
1: So, uh, what have been some of the key ah? Uh, what's the word I want to? Uh, what are some of the key steps in the ongoing process?
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, so I I disclosed the one mistake I feel like I made in. Reflection back was I wish I had visited this process earlier in in the building. We did so much work coming together that that probably took our first five years. But then after that, it really wasn't for another seven years that I formalized it again because I got to a point at the school that I realized, huh, you know, we're not the same people anymore. (laughs) We're not, we do kind of, I think we're doing okay. Yeah. But, you know, how, when was the last time we actually sat down and talked about this? So it was about, it was about year 13, uh, year between like 11 and 13, that I cracked open this full process another whole time. And when I did that, what I felt was important, because now I wasn't dealing with forging a new community. I had an existing community mm-hmm. that needed to validate what was working needed to face what wasn't working, and needed to truly start to envision where we needed to go now that there was a base of where we had been. So some of those big questions are, were just that. It was things like, tell me what works well in the school. What are the th- What are the pieces that if somebody said, oh, we're going to change some things around here. What are the pieces you'd fight for and say, don't change this. This is, you know, this is super effective, or this is incredibly important to the people here. So in asking those questions, you find out what are those sacred cows? What are the pieces that people really think we do right and, and that are coveted? And then you move forward to ask questions like, "To like, if we could get anything we wanted at this school, what would you wish for? What are the things that you've seen in other places, or you've read about, or you heard about? Don't worry about whether you think it's possible or not. Just what would you like to have?" And you start to also work with people dreaming and start to say, "Oh, you know," and you get the silly things like, "Oh, I wish that we had uh, <laughs> the Atlantic Ocean to the to the left," or. You know, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be great if we had a roller coaster out back? Well, yeah, that's funny, but you do start to get real answers and uh, things like, boy, we only ever take kids on field trips once a year. Wouldn't it be great to go twice a year or quarterly? Things yeah. like that. And um, so those wish questions, those dreaming questions do pull out what's what is possible. And then the other piece I think is hard is what do we need to let go of? So, for example, sometimes we hold on to things or do things just because we've always done them. Yes, and we really don't need to do those. Yeah. So we would we do talk about what do I need to let go? What and maybe it's not us, maybe it's a me, but what do you need to let go? Of? What do you see our school need to just allow to pass? Yeah. So, in saying that, there. That you know certain traditions are those those things that people would be like, "Oh, we could never not do this, but there definitely are things that people are like, "You know, I have no idea why we do x y z there as an example, there's um, certain pieces that we track data in that started to become very redundant because of the digital age, but we're still writing things on like QM folders and handwritten. And all of a sudden, people are going, why do we spend time doing that? And that's an excellent question. Why do we spend time doing it? Well, guess what? We don't do that anymore. (laughs) But if you don't ask and you don't talk about it, sometimes people, you know, educators tend to be do-gooders. We just want to do what we're told to do and do the right thing. Yes. And if you don't start to question, well, why are we doing this? Um, Then we can be asking things of people that are taking their time and they're not valuable you
1: said something that really kind of lit my heart up. Uh, The question, not only what do we as a school or a system need to let go of, but what do I as an individual need to let go of? That tells me that in this visioning process, you are first and foremost developing a pretty deep level of trust that folks can reflect and dialogue about that, and share that. And that, for me, it, wherever that gets established, that's an incredibly healthy environment.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Tom, I think um, some of that truly has come in my what I've done in my work by p- creating these groups with intention and being a leader that knows my people. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if there is... A historic dissonance or a rift between certain individuals, I won't put them in the room together for these discussions. Right. I'll make sure that I have them in separate groups, and certainly I can't be aware of everything sure but there are there are certain dynamics that harbor trust, and just the fact that I rethink some of that also in, instills even more trust in the process. In saying that, too, there's also um, room for individual feedback as well. And that can be done in two ways. So one way I've done is to collect it through like a survey type form. Um, And just so that there's another level of feedback to be had instead of the group components. But the most effective way is by meeting with individuals. Mm -hmm. And. These interview conversations, I call them my key questions, and uh, so it's funny because my staff starts to joke around uh, now with the pandemic. They had a year off; I didn't do key questions, (laughs) Um, but they start to joke around because they know kind of what they're about to get asked. and, And we sit down. It's usually mid to end of year, and I have some questions I want. I want to know. And first one is, how are you growing? How are you becoming a better person? Mm. Tom? I don't care if they tell me they're learning how to cook Italian food. They're playing piano. um, They're reading new books. They're going to a graduate class. It's all growth. Uh, My point of asking that is because I want to hear the answer of, I'm doing this new thing. But I'll tell you, there are some conversations that it needs to be okay that they're not doing something new because it also allows me to understand where individual perspectives are coming from. And I can add that to that visioning knowledge by being a leader that has that background, never to violate trust or, or what's been shared, but it definitely goes into those collective understandings when they disseminate the work. And that's important too. So along with these listening groups, the focus groups, the key questions, the individual surveys, and for the listener, this is not all done in a short amount of time. This takes like a long time. Don't think that that's, I mean, it sounds overwhelming when I just said that in one sentence. But the other thing I do is I circle up in uh, faculty meetings or in uh, collective groupings. And I have, I have key questions and I have answers. I show people what Collective understandings were. So I, I would present, you know, here are the five things that came out of all these groups that are important to us. Here's who we are. We believe these things. And you know, the validation in those rooms are amazing because you just watch everybody like, yeah, I do believe that. Um, there, there's, it's very rare that you would have somebody in that room that doesn't believe what's up on that paper because they all contributed to it.
1: Yeah. That's a powerful reinforcement for who they are. And and, and as you said, the contribution they've made. Mike, you, you've been, you've been so wonderful listening to Missy and I, uh, and I'm aware that, that we need your voice at the table. Uh, brilliant young man, young father, special educator. Uh, what, well, how are you feeling? What are some of your thoughts as you listen to Missy and I?
0: Um, it's an exciting conversation, definitely. And as someone who, uh, is a special educator and someone who spends a lot of their building time in a classroom more isolated from the community as a whole. It's really nice to hear that there's a systemic way to create these relationships and encourage staff in a building to be whole people so they can come together as a whole building. So it's exciting to say the least. And there's the little things that pop out at me just from being a teacher, those, those stereotypical things, um, where you say like, oh, it's one more thing and it doesn't feel like that. Wow. And then my next thought jumps to, well, what about your detractors or the people who are reticent to, uh, make any kind of change because they're comfortable or complacent. Do they live inside this framework somewhere or are they left on the outside of it to uh, with an invitation to join or kind of uh, an ultimatum to go away if they're not willing to participate?
2: (laughs) That's a wonderful question. That's a great question. That is a great question. You know, the detail answer to that, Mike, is really unique to who those players are. Um. In my experience, when you take a system through this process, the outliers or those that are going to become barriers, is the term we use in the book, um, become very few because everyone in some way has contributed to the mass. And possibly because we're dealing with schools, we all have a common ground coming into this process, which is kids and and. Every one of us is working in a school system, so it would be very odd or rare that at least we don't love kids and we want something good for our students. Hmm. But that might not be the same if you're working at Starbucks or Microsoft, (laughs) (laughs) but we do have that advantage. So those barriers, those people that are fence riders or outliers, what I have found is that the... That the system, the vision, if the majority are with you, or possibly more than the majority, you've probably done it well enough to keep, keep it moving, keep it going forward. And the culture that starts to evolve around that begins to take care of the outliers. In saying that, if you would have somebody who's very outspoken or dissonant to the culture, that's not going to be comfortable for anyone. So as a leader, I would try to help that person understand how to match whatever it is the the, the group is asking. But if it's simply a non-compliant, like, oh, uh, okay, those people can do that kind of thing and I'm going to be over here doing my thing. Um those again, very rare, but those people, it's my job as the leader to side what I like to say side up with them. And find out what's going on. And if they truly have a good reason for not um, believing in something that we all feel is right for kids and the system, then it's up to me to either help adjust that or understand it so that I can find the connect. Because almost always I can find a connect.
1: So when you said that concept side up with them, I love that. And all throughout our conversation tonight, and side up says it again, it's all about relationship.
2: Absolutely. I can't side up with people if I don't know them. Yeah. And um, I have to, and whether I'm the school principal or a team leader or a coach in the building or a special educator, um, if you know those in your sphere and you know the people that you have influence over, you're going to be able to support them. And what I like to call it is you push a little and then you lift them up. Mm-hmm. And so everybody needs a little push and out of their comfort zone sometimes. But what they also need is to be, you can't let go. You mm-hmm. got to push a little and then raise them up. And when you raise them up and they feel that support, that's, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So it's also about knowing what people need and what they want and, and, you know, not everybody needs the same things. And as right. a school leader, it's up to me to figure out which level and what everyone needs to be the best that they can be and to contribute. And sometimes people aren't in the right spot. Mm-hmm. Now, I've I've had people make changes in the building, outside of the building, and just become even better and stronger at what they do. Um, it's important to love what you do every day. Absolutely. There's a, uh... In my notes, as, as Mike
1: and I was pre- we were preparing, and, we, and, we, and Mike talked with you, one of the words that comes ringing out of the book for me that I love is vulnerability. So mm-hmm. as a leader, how do you model that?
2: So for this topic, one of the biggest things, Tom, is I, as a leader, cannot go into this work knowing the end of it.
1: Mm. And I've got
2: to be totally okay with that. Yeah, I, mean, I know what my I know where my non-negotiables are. I know where my my box that I can draw to say, you know, this picture frame the the frame itself, or my morals, my ethics, my integrity, and I'm not about to allow anything to go outside of that. But within that frame, I've got to be okay with this group just um, works with and comes out with. Because if, I, if I'm not, why did I even start? And that would be where the trust would dissolve, the integrity would drop. Um, I've got to be a voice. I can be the guide. I can, as a school leader, I can show the way. I can provide the framework. But I, it's my job to elevate the voices that are contributing and what I see happening. And sometimes it's, it's my job to show them what they're not seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, not one of the other things I've learned over the years about educators is they're very humble. They, they really don't get all that comfortable. If you start to, to, um, congratulate them on something or tell them that they've done something exemplar. they like to hear an individual, but they also want to think that their peers are just as good as them. And they don't want to do something that they're, that would make their peer look Like they're not, that person's not doing something well. So being able to show people on a collective level, how they're working together with synergy and um, impacting kids is powerful. And they don't always see it. Um, They need to be told what's happening. And sometimes they need a mirror right in front of them because they're doing it and they don't realize how powerful it is.
1: So. As we start to get a sense of coming to the end of our conversation, I want to ask you, for all of our listeners, what's the call to action? What, as a lead learner, would you ask them to to focus on to help each of our listeners know that they can help create a visioning process in their buildings or districts?
2: Hmm. So, if we we go back to um, even our indigenous populations and wow. like tribal components in um, many centuries ago, in how uh, communities came together and operated, it leaders evolve, but they they but they're in every pocket. And I think one of the of mistakes we make is. Assuming that this kind of work has to come from what I would call a positional leader
0: mm-hmm. so
2: just because I'm the principal it's my job to do this or just because there's a superintendent it's it's her job to do this. Um, this kind of work is certainly expediated with the support of positional leadership but but it can be done by a group of people that have a strong belief system and a vision of what Needs to happen in their school, and how I would say, if you as a teacher or as a school leader are listening, and you feel like you're a lone wolf, I don't think you are. <laughs> I think you have to use your voice and speak up and say, "Would this be possible that we could start this process in our school? Could we dedicate time to this?" Because sometimes you you don't have to put the fancy words on it. You just want to hear. What, do I, what does everybody think we should be doing or we believe in together that we could make ourselves better? Mm. And then eventually take the process and start to implement it. And sometimes that alone will begin um, a more informal effort to get to the same end. So I would suggest that, of course, I wish every school leader would buy this book and do this for their school. But if you're not in that situation, um, be the person that speaks up and use your words. You know, a closed mouth will not get fed. You must (laughs) say what you need. And then this is a tool that can help whoever's listening and whatever starts to evolve, um, help it grow.
1: I really want to encourage all of our listeners. Please, please give yourself a treat. Purchase Visioning Onward, a guide for all students. Missy is one of the three authors here, and it, it's a wonderful step-by-step process full of excellent research, resources, and stories, and it will help you in that process of leading and continuing to learn for your school system. Missy, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be with you.
2: It's great to be here tonight. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Mike.
1: Mike, thank you for coordinating as always. It's good to be back with you, my friend.
0: You too. And to everyone out there, thanks for listening. Tune in next time and uh, we'll see you out there.